When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we're still thinking about Steve Bannon and whether his departure as chief strategist for Donald Trump will change things or not. Later in the show, John Nichols says the stain Steve Bannon put on Donald Trump's presidency cannot be washed away. Also, more evidence supporting the view that Russia interfered with our election. Joshua Holland has that story. But first, after Steve Bannon was fired as chief strategist in the Trump White House, headlines around the world declared that it was a triumph for Jared Kushner. That particular headline was in The Guardian. For comment, we turn to our chief Jared correspondent, Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's best known for her award-winning books on Haiti, most recently, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. I'm laughing at my new title. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we heard for months about the hostility and infighting between Jared and Steve Bannon. The stylistic differences, of course, are hard to miss. One is rumpled, one is neat, one is loud, one is quiet. But the political ones are the ones we want to focus on here. Bannon has said his departure opens the door to Wall Street Democrats in the Trump White House. Is there any truth to the idea that Jared and Ivanka are Wall Street Democrats? They're they're from Manhattan. I mean, of course, Jared originally is from New Jersey, which is indescribable in its political affiliations. <laughs> but once you're from the elite in Manhattan, which those two are now and have been for a long time, you're not usually alt-right, let's put it that way, just to begin with. But then, sure, this family, including the president who's in office right now, have traditionally given a lot of money to Democratic causes. Uh, they've all supported Hillary Clinton when she's run for office before the presidency. They have Democratic leanings. We don't know how people vote in this country, Mr. Bannon, so we don't know, really, but uh, they have Democratic leanings, certainly. Uh, and in the old days, I mean, one thing I keep thinking about is uh, how Donald Trump himself used to support abortion rights, gay rights, would say fabulous things about Hillary Clinton, uh, how Ivanka's friends with Chelsea and probably still is. So these are people who have had brushes with the norm of thinking in, in, in the United States. They're not all Bannonites by any stretch. And I think Steve Bannon 
because of his intransigent personality, sees people who don't agree with him, including those in the Republican Party, as Democrats. Is this the Democratic Party of Elizabeth Warren and uh, the people who voted for Bernie Sanders in the primaries? No, it's not. And, And Bannon knows that. That's why he ties it right to Wall Street. It's more Hillary Clinton or... Uh, Lawrence Summers, that kind of Democratic Party that is uh, fine with the elites and fine with the 1% running the world. So the real big question here is, what do Jared and Ivanka want that's different from what Steve Bannon wanted and still wants? Well, Bannon wants Trump. To Bannon, Trump is a a weapon of the alt-right. So Trump is something that is serving Steve Bannon, I've always believed. Uh, And so he sees him as pushing forward the agenda of basically Breitbart, whereas Ivanka and Jared see Trump as a family standard bearer whose success they wish for both now and in the future. This is a family. They want him to run in 2020. They want him to win in 2020. They don't want him to go down in a fiery, you know, uh, Jeremiah in support of the Confederacy, for example. Good point. When you say Jared and Ivanka want Trump to be reelected in 2020, how does this make them any different from Bannon? Doesn't Bannon want that, too? Well, Bannon wants it, too. And it is true that Trump was elected the last time around with a non-majority of voters, but his base is shrinking. Uh, Jared and Ivanka are watching. And I'm sure that they, like any reasonable political commentator, feel that unless he broadens his appeal, he can't get enough votes to be elected this t- the next time around. And I'm sure Bannon feels that he has to, like, be who he is, which is a creation of Bannon. Bannon certainly feels that he can't win if he loses his base. And he will, Bannon knows that he will lose his base if he starts uh, namby-pambying and liberalizing and progressivizing. uh, and, And that I think Bannon may make a very rational judgment that he needs only to broaden his base. He can't attract outsiders to the phenomenon Trump. And therefore, he should stick with the craziness. Bannon really wants the wall as a symbol of white nationalism. We're going to keep out the brown-skinned people because America is a white nation. And the people who support us are the white people. Jared and Ivanka, they're not so interested in keeping out the brown-skinned people. Well, and there are certain reasons for that. First of all, as I said, they're part of this cultural world in Manhattan that believes in multiculturalism and diversity and actually sometimes knows at least really successful people of color. But beyond that, Jared is an ethnic Jew and Ivanka is a, a converted Jew. Now, From time immemorial, white nationalists don't think of Jewish people as like completely honestly white. So they're naturally inclined toward believing in a certain kind of diversity anyway. And it can't be easy for them to support the wall or the Muslim ban. Yeah, the Muslim ban is another one of Bannon's uh, special projects. And you think that Jared and Ivanka are not supporters of banning Muslims from entering the United States. 
I think they're not. I mean, I think they're not naturally supporting it. Maybe they do support it publicly because Trump keeps on keeping on. We have to see whether the exit of Bannon really makes any difference. And I think Bannon very intelligently, because Trump is to him simply a tool, is going to push Trump from the outside publicly. And we'll see how Trump reacts to that. Trump doesn't like to be pushed around. And of course, the other big difference is that Steve Bannon wants to mobilize the little guy. He's against Wall Street. Even though he worked at Goldman Sachs for five years as an investment banker, he has turned his back on that world. He's not really in favor of tax breaks for hedge fund guys. And this also is is a huge gulf between him and Jared and Ivanka and let's call it the Wall Street, New York faction of the Trump White House. Right. The Gary Cohens and the Dina Powells, who both are from uh, Goldman Sachs and who, at least Dina Powell, who are friends with Jared and Ivanka. Yeah, you can see why Steve Bannon feels this way. I mean, Trump ran on a Bannonite platform of rejecting the banks. It was kind of like the Bernie Sanders on the right. Yeah. And uh, and now Goldman Sachs is right there in the White House and Steve Bannon isn't there anymore. So he's going to be keeping a very eagle eye on on this aspect of the uh, presidency. And Bannon also says, here's one of my favorite Bannon quotes. He's in favor of, quote, deconstructing the administrative state. <laughs> Sounds sort of like a grad student in literary theory at Yale. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure Trump knows what deconstruction is. Uh, is Jared in favor of deconstructing the administrative state? Trump knows what deconstruction is if it means bringing down a building. Yes. (laughs) I don't think that Jared thinks in those terms. Bannon is a real thinker. No matter what you may say about him, he's an ideologue. He's a thinker. uh, He knows what the administrative state is. I believe that as of five months ago, Jared Kushner, that thought, or idea never crossed his mind. Except maybe for a building code. A uh, building code violation or something. I'm sure he'd like to make the building code less stringent. (laughs) But the administrative state is something the Trumps need desperately, because otherwise no one will be running the country. I mean, there's just not a lot running the country. And one of the things I think is important is it would be a battle for Donald Trump's soul if you granted him ownership of such an entity. But anyway, it's a battle for something about how the United States is going to move forward. And Bannon will be on one side, sort of the bad devil, and then Jared and Ivanka on the other shoulder, the good devil, except that they're really not that good. (laughs) You know, and the idea that we're all praying that Ivanka and Jared will emerge triumphant from this battle shows you just how depraved the situation is with the Trump presidency. And I think another big area of difference is that Bannon is an anti-interventionist. Part of being a nationalist is let's let's keep uh, let's keep right. out of foreign involvement. So then the Afghanistan speech and then move toward uh, bolstering our troops there and continuing that war till its final triumphant end. Triumph is a theme in this administration oh. uh, because there's so little of it. That can't sit well with Bannon and hasn't. And he has been very vocal already on Breitbart about the new Afghanistan policy. But Jared is interested in all these, uh, all of our Eastern problems. And so I don't think he advocates for an isolationism at all. He's in charge of China. He's in charge of the Middle East. He's gone to Iraq. He's, He's in the foreign policy mix. Whether he knows anything about it is another issue. 
There's been so much attention to this battle between the Bannon wing of the Trump White House and the Jared and Ivanka wing. Why is there this battle in the first place? There are two issues, I think, at play here. One is Trump doesn't know how to run an office that's just not that's not filled with his loyal Trumpies that he's had around him for 100 million years. Now he has Ivanka and Jared there. Those are his loyal Trumpies. Then he has Bannon, who is also a loyalist. But there's an emptiness at the center that is Donald Trump. He doesn't like policy, doesn't want to read about policy, doesn't want to think about policy. And so what he does is takes advice, only advice. And if you have then two warring factions who who disagree on policy and also disagree on style and also disagree on final goals, you're going to have huge problems. One of the interesting stories about Trump is that during the transition, he gets something that you don't get until you've won the presidency called the presidential daily brief. This is the PDB and the PDB is given to the president, the vice president and whatever cabinet members might be involved in that day's business and no one else. But when Trump was getting the presidential briefing paper for that day, he insisted in an unprecedented move that Jared also get the PDB. So you see that he wants someone else to read and do the work and tell him what to think so he doesn't have to deal with it. Amy Willens, she covers Jared and Ivanka and all the other Trumps for us. (laughs) Thank you, Amy. You're welcome. Steve Bannon's departure as Trump's chief White House strategist is being welcomed by many as a change for the good. Maybe now people say Trump will move away from white nationalism. But how much will Bannon's departure really change things with Trump? For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent and author of the new book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. You can order it now online. It's published next week by Nation Books. We reached him today in Madison. John, welcome back. It's a great pleasure to be with you, John. Well, Bannon got a lot of credit for giving Trump political and ideological coherence. Trump, in this view, started out being simply a a racist liar, as he was in his birther days. Uh, But after Bannon joined his campaign, Trump adopted a more systematic and consistent white nationalist perspective. I wonder if you agree with that view. Yeah, in fact, I, I write about it in the book in, in looking at the different camps and sectors within the White House and a couple things to, to keep in mind. First off, never fall into the trap of thinking that someone is Trump's guru. The better way to think of it is this. Trump is Trump. He hires people who he likes, who he wants around him, by and large. He's not a very good judge of people, so sometimes he hires folks that he ends up not liking very much. But he brings in people that he thinks will benefit him. And the benefit he has always needed in politics, at least in his mind, and frankly, you know, I think in the mind of a lot of folks, is a kind of a, a, a focusing, a defining of this, this kind of out-of-control character. Yeah, But the core character is there. Donald Trump is a bad guy. The people he hires and empowers, like Bannon, are folks that help him to make who he is politically viable. And I want to emphasize strongly, 
Bannon was smarter than the other people in the West Wing. Better read, more historically, you know, experienced and knowledgeable. And so he clearly put a lot of definition on Trump. But do not think for a second that Bannon's exit creates a circumstance where Trump's suddenly going to become a good guy. There's no evidence to suggest that. None whatsoever. The way to understand it is this. Bannon is a nationalist, a guy who clearly advanced the alt-right, a guy who was clearly winking and nodding toward white supremacists, toward all sorts of extremists. He's also an anti-Muslim fanatic. Yeah. No doubt about that. Well, now let's just be conscious. Sebastian Gorka, who was the kind of anti-terrorist, Muslim-bashing writer for Breitbart that Bannon brought into the White House, Sebastian Gorka is still in the White House. Sebastian Gorka is still advising Trump. He's still advising. He's still very much in Trump's inner circle. And then think of Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller, who clearly, as a young man, had a good deal of interaction with folks who came to define the alt-right, clearly had interaction with folks like Richard Spencer, and who was for a long time on the staff of Jeff Sessions, who is by any measure the alt-right's favorite player in this administration, uh, and then made early contact with Breitbart, was tied to Bannon well before Trump was. He's still in the White House. This is the guy who, by all accounts, co-wrote or played a critical role in writing the inaugural address and has continued to be close to Trump, who has continued to be there. You know, to think that Bannon's departure somehow cleanses the White House of, you know, all of its, you know, bad trappings of all of its ties to the worst players in our politics. No. In fact, it, it is fair to say that Bannon was the more mature and potentially more flexible of the people that were there. That were there. there are other people who I think are far more troubling. And, and again, I would emphasize Sebastian Gorka. You have know, got a chapter on him in the book. Tell us about Sebastian Gorka. If you pay serious attention to this guy, there are two fundamentals about him. His comfort level with fascists and neo-fascists is profoundly unsettling. Secondly, his experience in the area where he counsels and advises Donald Trump, that of anti-terrorism and dealing with Muslims, has been called into question by essentially everyone who's ever dealt with him. So you have a guy who has incredibly bad politics and knows nothing about what he's talking about. Another way of understanding Bannon is to follow the money. Bannon has been paid and is still being paid by Robert Mercer. He's the far right-wing billionaire. Uh, and his daughter, Rebecca, they fund Breitbart. They became the biggest single funders of the Trump campaign. Apparently, they recommended Bannon to Trump as campaign uh, CEO. What do Robert and Rebecca Mercer want Luckily for us, your new book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, begins with a chapter on the Mercers. Yeah, it's important to start, you know, where the, the real power is. And there's no question that the Mercers are the real power. 
the Mercers are unimaginably wealthy. I write in the book about, you know, just their, their playthings, the yachts, the, the elaborate houses. These are people who literally don't know what to do with their money. They have so much of it. And they have both become highly engaged in politics. It is at once a hobby and an obsession for the father and the daughter. They have unlimited resources to make things happen. They're exceptionally far on the right. To give you a perspective on this, the Koch brothers are a pair of nuanced intellectuals with oh, uh, moderate leanings compared <laughs> to the Mercers. Oh, boy. And then this is the other thing about the Mercers. They choose political players and nurture them up. And they nurtured, to give you a couple of names, Steve Bannon, who you've mentioned, they also nurtured up Kellyanne Conway. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, Kellyanne Conway was very tied to uh, Ted Cruz's campaign, not directly, but, but running a super PAC for the Mercers. And when Ted Cruz crashed and burned, and when a lot of other things came together for Donald Trump, the Mercers essentially communicated that if Donald Trump wanted them to convert their whole political operation to helping Donald Trump, he had to hire their people. This is like a corporate takeover. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, we're going we're gonna to take over your company, but we want to bring our executives in. And their executives were Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway. Conway, of course, still in the White House. Bannon now outside the White House. But this is the important thing to understand. The Mercers don't care whether you're inside or you're outside. They just want to keep moving the ship forward. And so for so long as the Mercers continue to finance and support Steve Bannon, as they will, I I predict, at incredible levels, while at the same time maintaining ties within the White House via Kellyanne Conway and others, the influence on this administration, steering it toward a hard right stance, on social and economic issues, will be profound. Only fools will think that that Bannon's departure, you know, dials something down or diminishes the influence of these players. In fact, I would argue the opposite. I think their influence increases because now they have a clearly defined inside-outside strategy mm-hmm. with Bannon on the outside, Conway and others on the inside. That I, I, I would argue will probably. Uh, steer Trump as effectively as if Steve Bannon was sitting at his side in the Oval Office. Uh, Bannon says that now that he is out, the globalists will take over the White House. What what exactly is he talking about? Well, that's an interesting phrase. And for him, it's a, obviously a phrase of derision. Uh, he believes yeah. that uh, Gary Cohn, who's Trump's chief economic advisor, uh, Steve Mnuchin, who's over at Treasury, certainly Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, are these sort of elite New Yorkers or L.A. types, if you, and if you get out of New York, but, but very coastal, very international, very concerned about what the New York Times or at least the Wall Street Journal says about them, and very much in the traditional right-wing Republican economic mode, i.e. they support austerity for working people, they support flush government spending, 
for the military industrial complex and tax breaks for the wealthy. Now, I think for a lot of people on the left, they'd say, wow, you know, I mean, those, that's pretty bad. That's not what you want in charge either. Well, this is where, the, where it gets complex because while Cohn and Mnuchin and uh, Ivanka and Jared are all those things, they are also relatively more moderate on race, gender, sexuality, and a host of issues, which are often used to divide people politically, immigration as well. And so this is where Bannon's, you know, where, where they clearly are at odds with Bannon. Bannon wanted and, ha- and continues to want to create a Republican Party that has tremendous appeal to people who've been economically battered. And he wants to build a broad base of voters who support a party that promises them jobs and that tells them that their problem is immigrants and and people they don't know. So this is where, again, Cohn, people like that, become a burden for Bannon because they make it harder for him to do some of his divisive politics. But don't think for a second that the people that Bannon refers to as globalists are somehow noble players as regards the overall scheme of things. They're actually the people who are in the administration to make themselves richer. And the way that they choose to make themselves richer is by making most Americans poorer. John Nichols of The Nation, his new book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. You can order it online now. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure, my friend. Now it's time to talk about Russian interference in elections, not just ours, but other countries, too. For that, we turn to Joshua Holland. He's a contributor to The Nation magazine and a writing fellow at The Nation Institute and host of Politics and Reality Radio. Joshua Holland, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, John. Of course, there's this debate on the left, which includes some of our colleagues at The Nation who argue that the real story about Russian collusion with the Trump campaign is that Hillary Clinton loyalists are defending their candidate from her embarrassing loss by focusing on Russia. Or maybe it's that rogue elements within our intelligence agencies have been fabricating evidence of Russian involvement in order to undermine Trump's legitimacy. Or maybe it's that elements of the deep state have somehow been sabotaging Trump's efforts to bring about detente with Moscow because they are old school cold warriors. You had a great idea about a way to test these arguments against facts, but not the familiar facts about our own presidential campaign last fall. Tell us about your approach here. Well, it's perfectly understandable that here in the United States, we focus primarily on our own experience last year. But the truth is that the so-called active measures campaigns that we saw in 2016 in the United States is uh, part of a, a strategic approach to international influence that Russia has used for the past 10 years in countries all across Europe. And I think that's a real problem for the skeptics here at home in that there is no incentive to uh, let Hillary Clinton off the hook for her loss 
by the intelligence agencies in in France or Germany or Georgia or Kazakhstan or Finland or Bosnia or Macedonia. So, I mean, we look at this in, in again, and understandably, in a prism of U.S. domestic politics and Russia, U.S. bilateral uh, relationships, but it really is a much broader part of a much broader geopolitical story. And that's the story that I tried to tell in my piece at The Nation, Russia's attacks on democracy aren't only a problem for America. The evidence here has to come from facts about all these different countries, which you've done a lot of work to put together, and also the chronology in all these countries. You say uh, this project of the Russians goes back at least 10 years, long before Donald Trump was a candidate for the presidency. One of the most interesting to me was that 2015, British intelligence tipped off U.S. spy agencies. What did the British discover at that point? Well, the British were picking up an unusual uh, amount of communication between people in Trump's inner circle and Russian intelligence and a lot of chatter among Russians um, about the Trump campaign. This is something that's also been reported, uh, was reportedly picked up by some U.S. intelligence agencies. At the time, the U.S. intelligence agencies didn't make much of it. Uh, Trump is a prominent public figure. He had coordinated the Miss Universe in 2013. So even though it, it kind of raised some red flags, the NSA didn't take it to be anything of great import. It was the Brits who said, wait a second, there's something going on here. So this is British intelligence sending the American agencies information about what they discovered about Russian intentions toward the United States, not towards the British elections. Have I got that right? That's right. And then over the next six months or so, a number of intelligence agencies from other countries also informed um, their U.S. counterparts that they were picking up this kind of chatter, either inappropriate or at least at a minimum chatter that raised red flags for them. And there's a number of cases where the Russians interfered or at least tried to interfere with elections underway that were not in the United States. Let's talk about some of those. I mean, it started really in 2007. In, in 2007, Vladimir Putin gave a speech where he talked about how there was a, a kind of Western plot to surround Russia and peel off its former, uh, the former states within its, its sphere of influence. The, the Russians began experimenting a lot with information warfare that year in Estonia. Uh, they followed with campaigns in Georgia, in Kyrgyzstan, in Kazakhstan. And um, they, they haven't hidden this penchant for using information warfare. The chief of the general staff uh, Valery Gerasimov, he wrote in 2013, and I'll quote, he wrote that informational conflict is a key part of war. Actual military strength is only the final tool of a much subtler warfighting strategy. And they've invested quite a bit earlier this year. Russia's Ministry of Defense announced that it had uh, established a new cyber warfare unit. British officials believe that they uh, that Russia interfered in the UK elections with cyber hacks, uh, with the same kind of 
cut dark PR campaign we saw in the United States. Uh, German officials believe that large amounts of data were seized in a 2015 cyber attack on the Bundestag. And they, they blame that on APT28, the same Russian hacking group that's believed to be responsible for the DNC hacks. It goes on and on. I, I actually had to cut a couple of paragraphs out of that section because it was the 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 backstory here is really very very long and involved. So in Norway, uh, the the Labour Party, uh, it it was hacked. The Norwegian officials believe that it was the same again, the same group that breached the DNC's computers. I wanted to speak to European defense experts and intelligence experts for this piece to get out of that U.S. mindset. And I spoke to a number of them, and they, they kind of painted this picture of, whereas we see Vladimir Putin as this kind of cunning genius who is pulling all these strings, they see it quite a bit in, in, in much simpler terms. Putin rejects the post-war international order. He rejects the constraints that that puts on countries in terms of their human rights records, et cetera, et cetera. And he wants the ability to opt out of that of that system. He sees it as a as a as an alliance designed to advance Western interests. He's not entirely wrong about these things, but if you look at what his motives are, it is really to have freedom of movement to to undermine democracy, to uh, have free reign in terms of, of human rights violations, etc. And I just want to make sure here, your sources of information here are not Hillary Clinton loyalists who are looking for an excuse. <laughs> yes, that's right. I, I, I spoke to a number of Russia experts in the UK, uh, in, in Prague, uh, I want. I intentionally wanted to to speak to. Again, I, I went out of my way to to speak to experts who are not American and were not invested uh, in in our domestic politics or directly invested in U.S. Russian bilateral Russian bilateral relationship. I wanted to get some people who had some distance from what we're talking about, the debates that we have. So uh, I spoke to, for example, Mark Gallietti's the head, head of the center for European security at the Institute of International Relations in Prague. He has lots of connections in uh, in various European intelligence agencies. He's done a lot of consulting for the EU, et cetera, et cetera. And he's not a Hillary loyalist. Uh, I didn't ask him. <laughs> but the whole point of me talking to international, to, to, to uh, people located overseas was to, to get some distance from them. So I can understand why Putin would want a friendly government in the United States, in Britain, in Germany. I don't quite see why he cares about the Macedonians or the Estonians. How do you understand uh, interference in those elections? Vladimir Putin wants to make Russia great again. And he does have this kind of wistful uh, view of the Soviet Union. He sees these former states as part of Russia's rightful sphere of influence, and he sees attempts to entice them into the NATO fold mm. as a, a, a kind of encircling move by the West. Yes. Right. So this is this is really important, is that he, he is very much set against 
these former Russian uh, satellite states joining the Western alliance. This is a very, very, it's a, it's a high priority interest of the Kremlins to see that they don't. That makes perfect sense to me. And what's the reason why this is important? The reason that this is important is that all of these countries in Europe are taking, uh, going to extraordinary lengths to protect their election in the integrity of their elections. And we're going in the opposite direction. Um, we're slashing funding to secure election infrastructure. We have a president who denies that it's even an issue. And I think that the skepticism that you see on both the left and the right is really um, leading to a complacent response to what, what all intelligence officials pretty much agree is an ongoing and future threat. Joshua Holland, his new article at thenation.com is titled, Russia's attacks on democracy aren't only a problem for America, and that's a problem for skeptics of Russian meddling. Josh, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. I really appreciate it. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about race and gender in professional wrestling and focuses on the representation of the first WWE heavyweight champion from India, this guy named Jinder Mahal who comes from a Punjabi Sikh background. That's this week on Dave Zirin's new Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.